0: We don't know how our lives are going to end. We don't know how our relationships are in oh, and our relation, all of our relationships will end because we end. And so loving and living and being in these relationships with our eyes open to that and wanting, wanting those relationships to be whole. And so that things are not unfinished is, uh, is in some ways a really mature way. Like that's kind of how grownups really should be doing it.
1: Welcome to Stoic Conversations. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Aiken, the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt and repeat Stoic Conversations guest. Um, His work has ranged from epistemology, political argument, pragmatism, and of course, uh, several works on Stoicism. His most recent work is Epictetus's Enchiridion, A New Translation and Guide to Stoic Ethics with William O. Stevens who I hope many listeners are familiar with as well. Well, thanks so much for coming back.
0: Philip, yeah, well, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we've, we, we, and we, we, we have many things to pick up on.
1: Yeah, always good to chat with you. And this time around, I thought it'd be interesting to explore, dive deeper on uh, following up on our last conversation, which concerns some of the objections you cover with William O. Stevens in your last book, to Stoicism and sort of using that as a starting point to think about, okay, what is Stoicism? What are some of these objections? And how do you think about Stoicism yourself? And I suppose implication of that for listeners is how do you think about Stoicism yourself, of course, and how one manages these objections, different versions of Stoicism and so on. So a good starting point for that I think, is just setting up what you think are some of the central tenets for the tra- traditional Stoic view, I suppose, uh, with a particular focus on the ones that you might think are most important uh, for either informing one's life or a general worldview.
0: Right. So I think that every practitioner of Stoicism, anyone who's curious about Stoicism, is probably familiar with the fact that it's a highly revisionary philosophical program. It's supposed to kind of shake you out of a lot of the commonplaces that you have as a person who knocks about and has been acculturated, especially uh, if you've been acculturated in a society that values standing, that values wealth, values pleasure, that. In some ways, Stoicism requires a pretty radical change ethically uh, in terms of reconsidering what the good is. And it also requires a pretty radical revision in terms of how you manage your beliefs and what you think the world is like. And so one of the things that anyone who's been interested in Stoicism has had to wrestle with is just how significant a... Uh, A break it is with, you might say, common sense about so many things. And again, we can focus on Stoic ethics, but I think that it's connected to a lot of other features of Stoic philosophy as a systematic philosophical program. And so, again, I think that anyone who's done this realizes that that you have to be able to answer critical questions as as a Stoic practitioner. You yourself will naturally ask them. The people in your life will ask them. If you announce yourself as somebody who thinks that Stoicism is right, you're probably going to be on the hook for having critical conversations with folks who are going to say, that seems like a pretty wacky philosophical program. You need to be able to answer those questions. And so okay. I, I think that part of the thing about being interested in philosophy and interested in questions of the good life and wrestling with those uh, means that you're going to have, have questions. And I think that any good faith Stoic is, should be able to have them and be able to appreciate them as, as, as they are. And not chase them out of our mind. So that's the first point, which is: look, Stoicism is a kind of an all-in philosophical program, but it's not an all-in philosophical program that requires that you ignore the critical concerns of the program. It's one that requires that you have answered all of the doubts. Mm-hmm. And so it's and so instead of it's a sort of a plug up your ears uh, and pretend like the people who are criticizing you don't don't know any better or that they're terrible people that there are places where the Stoics need to be able to answer critical questions. So it's in the spirit of, hey, we're philosophers here. We're we're people who think that critical thinking is important. We're people who would never suppress a doubt if it's pressing. Um, We need to be able to answer them. So the first one is just simply that, look, uh, uh, and this is an old one. So I'll start with some old ones and then kind of build the ones that I I think have kind of emerged uh, with sort of new approaches to value theory. But old ones are that, like, look, you know, if you're a Stoic, maybe Stoicism, given a, it's metaphysics. They're fatalists. They're providentialists. Things just couldn't happen otherwise. That you that there's no that you don't make a difference. That you're willing. That you're doing doesn't make a difference if fatalism is true. There's another version of this sort of inaction problem that Stoicism robs us of our motivation. So uh, effectively, that. Their motivation to really do much of anything, mm-hmm. uh, that if all of the externals, all of the, if we really think that the fundamental divide or sort of the, 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 the division of value between what's up to us and what isn't, or that on, the only thing that matters is virtue, the only thing that's value is virtue, then many of the things that virtue is supposed to be productive of are not valuable. So it's unclear if we're kind of doing this kind of stochastic ethics it's all in the trying, it's all in the aiming, it's all, but not in the sort of the successful doing, it's unclear how we then are really committed to it. And so these, you might say, you might call this the lazy syllogism problems, inaction problems. They're very, very old. And Stoics had lots of approaches to be able to answer them. But I think that just starting there is a good place to start, which is, look, Stoicism is a pretty radical revision of our values. And the question is that whenever we turn those values inside and say yeah. it's the things that are in your motivations, it's the things about how you manage your character, it's in terms of how you thought things through, um, that the, the, the value is there. There's a kind of a question as to, well, why value that way? What?: Sure, uh, sure. Doesn't it rob you of the, of the kind of the active life that, stoic, that in some ways stoicism seemed to promise?
1: That, so do you think those like, uh, any version of that kind of objection is plausible or is the main force of it just that it brings up this question, you know, like why would you believe this revisionary version of values to begin with?
0: Yeah. um, Look, I think that that there's something to this objection. Um, And, you know, I I think that Stoics can answer it, but it requires some other revisions. And so, again, if the Stoics are going to be down with the revisionary game, they're going to be down with the revisionary game. So with the fatalism objection, a, a famous strategy that the Stoics had was, well, it's called the co-fatalist answer, which is, hey, if the results of my actions are fated, why should I do the action? And the answer is, well, you're also fated to do the action, right? You're fated to have the action. And again, the puzzle here is, well, then there's a strange phenomenon that happens where it's, where then you say, that's that seems like that is an answer, right? Now the Now the actions matter, right? So the doings do matter. So it is an answer, but it requires another revision that, looks like it pays that you pay a different kind of price and it's that um is that now your deliberations what feels like what you're doing is you're looking at a garden of forking paths where you could go down one and you could go down another Mm -hmm. and you're kind of deliberating between possibles to make make a decision on the actual that's actually an illusion from the stoic perspective the co-fatalist uh thought is if the results of your action are faded, then your action is faded. Um, then what you're doing when you're deliberating is you're actually not deliberating, you are discovering what your action is going to be. And that seems like a kind of a, again, a pretty significant revision, not just of our values, but in fact of kind of the kind of creatures that we are, uh, the structure of the world, um, that you might say the, that one way that we, that at the very least, we're tempted before we start thinking hard about time and possibility. That in some ways this, the future forks, and the future has all sorts of possibilities. We think of the future as a place where things are possible, and in some ways there there's really only one possibility from this perspective in terms of the actions that we take. So that seems that seems a pretty significant revision. Again, I I don't think that it's a. I think that it comes with a cost because again it requires that we kind of rethink what we're doing whenever we deliberate, whenever we think about our futures, whenever we think about what we, what we should do. And I, I think that Stoics, again, can, it, I don't think that it's a refutation, but it is one of these, another one of these, like, hey, Stoicism's really revisionary. We're gonna keep doing the revision, or the revision program. Um, but this one is one that, that, that requires that you really, really reorient yourself. So again, we're, we're revising what's valuable we're revising what's possible. We're revising what it is to make a decision. We're revising what it is to be in control of yourself. It's just this really systematic revisionary program that, again, you kind of get all the goods, but they're all changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that um, someone, again, a critic of stoicism might say, yeah, stoicism promised me self-control, but it, that's a little bit of false advertising. It's about not the self-control that I thought that I was getting whenever you tell whenever you were giving me this,
1: yeah, I suppose it's an interesting question. What is the self-control that people think they're getting when yeah. they become stoic? Is it this view of free will where I have this garden of forking paths available to me, and I get to choose who I become in that sense, or is it something around it's I can build up I can play a role in becoming an agent or something like that, someone who Takes responsibility for what's up to them. That might be more of the stoic type picture, which doesn't mean you get to choose between possible futures uh, in any robust metaphysical sense. You're playing out the the story that fate or nature, what have you, gave you. Uh, but does mean you can build yourself into someone who is more agentic. Might be might be one way to put it.
0: I like that. I like that, the, the way of recasting it to say like what, what it is to be in control is to in some ways be a full agent and that what you're doing is you're kind of crafting a self Mm -hmm. and that it's a self that has a different kind of focus that isn't knocked around, um, I think that a lot of these kind of models of thinking of stoic selves that get constructed by this is kind of like having internal gyroscopes. I like that, I like that image. It's again, kind of physicalistic, uh, but, and, and, and notice that it's, again, they're all causes here, but in some ways because of the kind of the internal guts of a, of a self, uh, there's a kind of stability that comes out of it. So I kind of like that, I like that image. And thinking of these philosophical programs as self crafting, and that what you're kind of doing is you're you don't have and again, this is another thing about the dichotomy of control or the fundamental divide that that in some ways bothers me about the epictetus stuff, and I think that it's sometimes pretty implausible so we're going to start transitioning to another worry, which is the psychological plausibility of the dichotomy um, thinking of your desires is up to you it just is so deeply implausible. Um, Uh, Like, I just can't make myself like mayonnaise. I just, like, mayonnaise is gross. Um, I can't, I can't overcome that. And so I can't make myself desire to have mayonnaise on a sandwich. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and uh, there are things that I like that I can't talk myself out of. Taste just kind of works that way. And so a lot of, and so, but there are other desires that it looks like you can have some kind of cognitive feedback on them. Um, And but notice, by the way, that it's always got to be indirect. You can't say something like, I, don't, I, I want not to like this, and I've got good reasons not to like this, but you find yourself still liking it. Um, and what has to happen is that you ha- kind of have to work on yourself kind of in an indirect fashion. Um, beliefs are this way, desires are this way, that you can't just say something like, I need to have a different belief. You need to start providing yourself with evidence. You need to start deliberating and thinking about the thing that is a desirable thing or an undesirable thing. and Think about how, what the bads are in it. And it's in looking at those things or in looking at the evidence for the truth of something that you actually then achieve the control that you were looking for all along. But it's, it can only be done indirectly. You can direct your attention to evidence, to reasons, but it's in directing your attention that then you can then change your beliefs. But you can't directly change the beliefs. You can't say, I wanna have this belief. You can only look at the evidence. And so the, the, one of the crucial things that I think is the case about the dichotomy of control or the fundamental divide is that it's really a kind of an aspirational program. What, what you're doing as a Stoic when you're performing these exercises is developing more control over those things. Again, it can only be indirect. You don't have direct control over your beliefs. You don't have direct control over your desires. You don't have direct control over what you wanna do or even maybe what your will is. What you do have direct control over is your attention and what you pay attention to and what kinds of reasons then can push you around. So again, it's this indirect control. So what we do is we, in some ways, come at ourselves sideways with these exercises and coming at ourselves sideways with these exercises gives us the skills and gives and crafts us into the kind of the people that we want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, this is again, the, the sort of the, this person crafting model, Chrysippus with the cylinders that roll, um, what you're kind of doing is you're crafting a cylinder that again, you can't make the cylinder, you know, roll, roll straight unless you've crafted the cylinder. And I think that the same thing goes with us. We work on ourselves so that we know what kinds of bumps we're going to see. And we kind of craft ourselves in ways that we can handle those bumps better than if we hadn't crafted ourselves. But you can't do that in the middle of having the bump. You can do that only beforehand. So um, so even, even the Stoic, again, I think that the Stoic dichotomy of control is an aspiration for Stoic. I don't, think that, I don't think that that's something that's just given to us, with, given the fact that we've got minds. I think that we've got indirect control over, over those things. And that's something that it can be only an achievement, and it's not something that's sort of just that we start off with. That's the reason why stoic exercises, again, are so useful for us, that we are not just crafting, we're crafting ourselves so that we're the kind of beings that we want to be, but we're also crafting ourselves as that we can, we get better at the feedback loops that we create for ourselves whenever we think about ourselves, think about the situations, think about the kind of person that we want to be. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. In some ways, I like the term the fundamental divide more. I think you and uh, William Stevens introduced that.
0: Yeah, Bill and I tried, tried to kind of revise that thinking that it was supposed to be a kind of a fundamental thing, but then we kind of take it back in the end. Um, so we're in this regard, we might be revisionary Stoics. We might like Stoicism is revisionary, but maybe we're revisionists. Again, I don't. I'd, I don't really have a view about whether or not Epictetus thought it was an achievement or thought it was something read into nature. I think that a lot of the places that we started uh, thinking about the Stoics is that Epictetus is saying it's something that we're doing. We're we're thinking about nature. We're thinking about uh, and human nature, and you've got this divide, and it's fundamental about us. Um, I think that it's something we establish. I think it's something that we we kind of eke out uh, very slowly.
1: So I would think about it in terms of there's this divide between impressions and then the faculties of uh, reflection and assent, And then those, of course, can lead to different, the outcome of that can be belief, desires, but it's sort of that little pocket of the Your will you might it might be translated as your will or uh, yourself, which involves yeah. reflection in a sense there's that and
0: hegemonic on in there,
1: yes, that's right, yeah
0: so yeah, I think and I and Caleb, I really appreciate the way that you that you framed it there, which is what 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 the training ultimately is is us managing how we respond to impression um they are they're, they're the way that the world appears, that they're they're the way that things appear to us, they're the way that values appear to us, they're the way that we appear to us, that what we're doing is we're, and, uh, and the challenge for Stoics is the fact that we've been habituated to take the impressions a certain kind of way. We hastily take impressions to be a certain way. And um, it's a kind of a care that we have to have between assenting to impressions or generalizing from them or taking them to be, uh, taking them to be ways that we have been kind of, again, acculturated to, to taking them Mm -hmm. that creates unhappy lives, unjust lives, um, and errors just about how the, how, what's at stake for us and what kind of people.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's right. And it gives you some space to think about, you know, Epictetus is always talking about what's your own, what's up to you. And you can think about this part of the world is up to me, my, how I manage these impressions. And it is true that many impressions have a very strong force. Sabatitas talks about you can't just look at the sun and pretend the sun's not out. And there are going to be some cases of desires like this as well that are going to knock you off your feet, either cause a physical response that you have no control over, um, or perhaps even be so forceful that you'll immediately assent to them. But nonetheless, you can build up your, uh, your faculty of mind to think better about um, ensuring that those you know, you don't automatically assent to false impressions or at least impressions that you don't have reasons to, to, to believe in. And, and that way, maybe one's thinking less about control, but simply what's up to you? What can you cause? How can you shape yourself? And that's, that's sort of the, the picture that. I've been coming uh, closer to uh, about about stoicism over the past over the past I don't know a few years or so.
0: But so one of the things that and a duty that emerges from this we are that the place where we control is in is in that transition zone between having an impression and having an assent or withholding assent or rejecting that. A duty emerges, a kind of an epistemic or an intellectual duty emerges there. And that the hard line with it, which I think is very plausible, which is this wise person doesn't opine. The wise person doesn't assent to impressions that aren't true and guaranteed to be true. These cataleptic impressions, And I think that that aspiration, you might say believing, believing according to the evidence that aspiration of a kind of an intellectual duty that we have to ourselves and to others. Um, uh, again, we've, we've got to accurately judge what, what our relations are. We've got to accurately judge what, those, what kinds of duties come along with those relations. We have to see the right in order for us to do our duty and to be the kind of virtuous people that we need to be. So we have obligations, again, to ourselves and to others and to our duties to to, to judge accurately. And The the last part of this is that that is a super demanding. Again, the classic stoic requirement is that the wise person doesn't opine, doesn't have anything, doesn't really assent to anything but what is knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the it's consequently, the wise person does not err. The wise person has no false beliefs. And when you think about that, you're like, on the one hand, you're like, okay, that's. That's what the critical thinking program is, that's why Stoic logic is so important. That's why Stoicism has the kind of the epistemology it's got and the theory of knowledge that drives it, that the theory of knowledge just connects right up with the with this heavy duty intellectual heavy duty intellectual duty.
1: Yeah, so I suppose there's um you know how do you make sense of knowledge in the Stoic picture? And then there's the addition of are there kinds of duties or epistemic characteristics that maybe they don't get you to that strict form of knowledge, but they get you closer to a Stoic kind of picture. So one question I I have going, jumping back a little bit, is how important do you think determinism is to something like the central Stoic uh, ideas? Um,
0: Boy, you know, it's a great question, because in some ways this is kind of the third hurdle, I think, to being a, a practicing Stoic. So I, I, I'm going to say I've got two answers. So uh, here's the long version. Here's the long way to the two answers. According to the ancients, Stoicism was a kind of an all all the above thesis, all the theses. So you're committed to the metaphysics, or in the physics, or you've committed to the physics, the logic, and the ethics. And what's that mean? That means that you're committed to the the, the providentialist picture of the world. You're committed to the, 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 the fiery end and the restart. You're committed to, um, the, the theory of knowledge. You're committed to the logic. You're committed to the fundamental divide and the ethics. You're committed to the deontology, uh, committed to all of it. it all, and, and their thought was, that it all kind of comes as a package that, um, that you can't do one without the other. So it all is just one big, one big, one big organic whole. And a lot of the ways that you and I have been talking about this has kind of been proceeding according to that uh, classical layout, which is we were talking about the ethics, and then we talked about the fundamental divide, and then we were talking about the epistemology, and then we were also talking about the providentialism and about how that bears on the ethics. So it's all clear that it all kind of connects up, and it's that's how systematic philosophy works, and that's a benefit of it. But uh, so the first answer is, yeah, it's intrinsically connected to it because that's, that's the system, right? Um, the problem with system—so that's a benefit of systematic philosophy, which is, hey, my epistemology, my philosophy of mind, my, um, my ethics, and uh, my theory of the ultimate good, and my theory of how the world works are all connected. And they're all—you can kind of spin one out of the other. That's amazing. The drawback to it is that a weakness in one in any one of those other places is that if they're all kind of connected and one part is garbage, then it's all garbage. And so that's the biggest challenge, I think, which is, you know, if you think that Stoic determinism doesn't look very plausible, if the arguments for Stoic determinism just don't look very good, um, then there's a problem. Or if you might say, look, if you think that there's a difference between providentialism and determinism, like, well, they're all causally determined versus they're all part of a plan, that looks like that's a different kind of claim, that that's a a problem. Or if we say like, well, look, the fundamental divide maybe is a little bit harder to kind of justify. Is that a problem? And again, the thought is that if it's a systematic philosophy and and the only way to be committed to any one of the views is to be committed to all of the views, then any one bad view brings the whole system down. And uh, a lot of folks, a lot of practicing Stoics are kind of in it for the ethics and not for the philosophy of mind. And they're not in it for the, for the logic. I don't know a lot of practicing Stoics who are like, yeah, I'd really like to learn some, developed propositional logic. And I want, to, I want a deeper theory of the Lecta, or, yeah. right? Stoic, like the theory, Stoic theories of rhetoric are not selling like hotcakes, uh, but Stoic theories of emotions are, why? And the answer should be, if the, if the classical theory were the case, well, it's a, because that's where the interests are, but the, but the Stoic theory of, of, of rhetoric or the Stoic theory of, how, of matter or something like that should be selling like hotcakes because of the fact that it's connected up with this other stuff. So it does look like, at the very least, from the perspective of practitioners, that you can be, practice Stoic ethics without being committed to Stoic logic. Why? Because there are a lot of people out there who are, pra- who are Stoic practitioners who don't know a lick of Stoic propositional logic. I mean, uh, uh, that seems very clear to me. I mean, just from reading a couple of them, it's pretty clear that they don't know any logic. Hey, yo, shots fired. I'm not naming names, but but the point here is that the point here is that is that the proof of many puddings is in the eating, and the the stoic. I think that the ancient stoics just didn't like wanted to say it all comes as a big system. It all is one big thing, and maybe stoic ethics is easier to practice if you're committed to the ethics to the logic. And to the physics, if you think that it's all providence, and if you're committed to the kind of the, the infalliblest theory of knowledge, maybe being an, maybe being a Stoic, maybe being committed to Stoic ethics is easier. Maybe there's a sort of a better and sort of smoother on ramp to Stoic ethics. But I don't think that you have to be committed to that stuff. I just don't think that you, I think that, I think that you can be committed to the thought that the world's a place of random garbage and Stoic ethics is the best place to approach random garbage. That's... Uh the the world is a place where you have very little knowledge. Right, right. Um, and, uh, but you know what? Still being a Stoic about things is still the best approach there. I think that, um, I think that in that regard, I don't think that you have to be a determinist. I think that you could be an indeterminist and still think that Stoic ethics is a good approach. A lot of the things that make Stoic ethics more appealing and easier to practice are being committed to the determinism and being pr- committed to the providentialism and being committed to the the ways that stoic critical, uh, critical reflection works co- on the cognitive stuff. But it looks like you don't have to be, it's, I mean, it, it, seems to me that like you can, you can be committed to all the things that make up stoic ethics and maybe some things have to get revised here and there. But you can still kind of have roughly the same approach. Um, and so. The, the longest answer is, I don't think that you have to be committed to the, I, I'm, I'm a kind of a stoic minimalist. I'm, I'm really tempted by the stoic minimalist m- minimalist program, which is, yeah, you can have stoic ethics and not have the, uh, the logic or the physics. I kind of play with the other one. Like I kind of play with the stoic logic, right? And I'm like, okay, let's see if we can make this stuff work without the, without the junk for the physics. Maybe stuff from the ethics will help, but it's not something that's, that you, that you can't go without. So, you know, in this regard, there's something about Stoic minimalism that's kind of appealing to me. Um, and there have been, a, and again, that Stoic minimalism can kind of come in various strengths. But it's that, you know, yeah, you can kind of have parts of the Stoic ethics or the Stoic logic or the Stoic physics and not have to have any of those other parts.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I broadly agree with that, but maybe think there's, there's always some important points about uh, how do you think about traditions. Cultures not being too quick to cast aside something purely because it sounds a bit odd. Um, so, there's, so there's some amount of epistemic virtue in respecting what others thought and understanding why they had these beliefs about whether it's providence or lecta, what have you, or the void. Um, so there, there is always something to that, but I don't think there's some strict rule that you need to uh, adopt the best understanding we have of Chrysippus's program and totality in order to be a stoic, I certainly don't think that's right
0: I think that's and so uh, that again seems like a very mature approach there caleb uh, you know uh, i i'm I have to admit that i am often very brusque with traditions i' sort of I'm not somebody who has the has the default attitude that that traditions have got who has accepted the default attitude that traditions have got and get default status. I'm inclined to think that, um, uh, again, part of the issue here is like what's in the name, what exactly comes from the naming. Um, I agree that for uh, traditions to remain intelligible, they need to have some kind of same family resemblance over time. Uh, There needs to be a kind of a causal and a kind of, certainly a causal and certainly a kind of a content uh, continuity there. I do wonder as to whether or not you, you, you have that point requires Then We can say something like, can big tent stoicism still handle someone who says like me, I'm not really, I'm not really sure that there's a fundamental divide or I'm not really sure that the fundamental divide is really a thing. It's a thing that really, that we can only aspire to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't really think that the wise person never airs. I definitely right uh i'm not entirely sure of that do i get to count do i get to be a stoic still uh and again this is the reason why i say like well you know maybe i'm Stoish and we can kind of have have a little bit of a uh, but you know uh wanting to keep traditions as traditions i totally appreciate that thought um well so
1: yeah yeah so i i'm curious like how revisionary and minimal are you cuz when i when i hear you say you're not so sure about the fundamental divide. And I think I agree about uh, there's some interpretations of the word control where you should be skeptical about the fundamental divide. But it does sound to me, at least so far, like you think there is a split between if you want to take it in terms of this, uh, the sense of identity or what you're causally responsible for. You can make a fundamental divide in terms of I'm responsible for uh, my faculties of reflection ability to assent and then whatever follows from that, you know, the, the impulse, um, like, do you think, and then I can say that is my own and the proper epic style, everything else is coming in from me or go, emerging out from my, uh, ju- judgments.
0: Yeah. Th- I think that if we are tracing this in terms of responsibility or ways that we might sort of think of ourselves as being, su- of, of being successful at something, um, uh, yeah, I think that that's right. It's just the point is that the fundamental divide often is put in terms of there being a kind of a direct control. And so I don't I just don't believe in that. And yeah, so yeah. I think that there I think that we can have indirect control and I think we can have successes at it. And so in that regard, yes, I do think that there is a fundamental divide. I just don't think that it's as the ancients had portrayed it to us, or at the very least as we might be heavily tempted to interpret them.
1: Yeah. So. But but did Epictetus think that? Because I suppose he does think that that you can yeah, there are strong uh, impulses, and you're sort of forced to believe them or impressions yeah. and so on. Uh, and desires. Yeah, I think that that's.
0: Yeah. You think, don't have direct
1: control over every.
0: You don't have direct control over everyone. Yeah. That's right.
1: So, I mean, maybe when he's in coaching mode, he's. And it's easily to interpret him as. You well, know, so there. So, by the
0: way, that's a. This is another kind of case where it. Where it. I think that given the fact that we've got. The Enchiridion, and then, right, and I really like your expression, coaching mode. That does seem like a real insight there because the rhetoric that he's using there is one that, again, is more auditory than theoretical. And sometimes it's really important to remember that. And I think that the same thing goes with Seneca. I think that Seneca is regularly not always arguing in propria persona, is often arguing in ways that makes it so that the point is accessible. And, uh, and, um, there are lots of points like in ad Marsha where I'm like, that, does that even look stoic? I, <laughs> uh, and so is the recognizably stoic, I'm unsure. Uh, so, uh, uh, I think that it's important that we as readers recognize, uh, that our, that our, that our forebears had other, had more purposes than just speaking to us.
1: Right. Yeah. I th- always think that's, yeah, that's important there. And of course they, uh, they're always speaking to a particular audience, and they might have said something different if they had, you know, weren't talking to Roman aristocrats or in Marcus Aurelius' case himself. Uh, well, is there any other topic you want to touch on?
0: We, we, last time uh, we, we talked about something that, uh, uh, and you pressed me on it, and I don't feel like I gave a good answer to it. And so I want to try again. But, so uh, thanks for giving me a, a, a shot at getting to, getting another, getting another pass at it. But if we remember, there was this what what I've been calling for years now the ruin problem that comes along with Stoicism. Um, that's the one that I worry about the most. The ruin problem is the one that just bothers me about Stoicism, and it's a place where, in fact, um, uh, again, another intellectual uh, I've gone back to this character again, uh, Antiochus of Ascalon himself was worried about the ruin problem for Stoicism too. Um, and I think that there's something really. I don't I don't think that Antiochus solves it. I I am not entirely sure if there is a solution to it. But again, I think the ruin problem is is the hardest problem for stoicism. Uh again, that might be just me patting myself on the back, but I think there's a I think there's a different kind of problem. And the ruin problem can kind of be stated in two ways. One of them is a kind of a theoretical one, another one is a kind of an interpersonal one. The interpersonal one is that um if you kind of go with that Epictetus Exercise of the jugs, right? We're like, hey, I got a jug or I got a mug that I'm kind of pleased with. I remind myself that it's just a mug and it'll break someday, so that whenever it breaks, it it doesn't break me. And then you just do that for bigger things, so that whenever you're kissing your wife or your child, you remind yourself that they're human beings and that they're that they'll die one day, and so that you won't uh, be broken when they die. And um, and the challenge isn't that. I don't think that it's true that reminding yourself of the sort of the shortness of uh, your loved one's life makes it so that you don't love them anymore. (laughs) Think like that. It doesn't ruin, it doesn't ruin that. It's the publicity of that, them knowing you're a Stoic, uh, them knowing that you are preparing for them to be lost and that you, so that you won't be destroyed whenever they leave. It's that it's, so it's that you, it's not that it ruins it for you. It's that it ruins it for them. Um, and here's another version of it. So that's the kind of the interpersonal practical version of it, that it ruins the relationship. Whenever it's clear that you're doing that as a stoic, that you say like, you're kissing your wife or you're kissing your child. And they're like, they're imagining me dead, right? They're preparing for me to let them down or for me to disappoint them, for me to hurt their feelings or for me to die and not be there for them, and that's what they're thinking about now. And that that seems to that seems to do something. Again, this is the sort of the looping problem of the relationships. And here's another version of, and this is the theoretical version, which is Stoicism is the view that o- that only virtue is the good. The problem is that virtues are virtues. It seems to me that virtues are virtues. This just looks, I again, this just looks as clear a principle to me as there ever is in ethics which is virtues are virtues because they're productive of good things. And it can't just be that they're productive of more virtues. Uh, it just seems to be kicking the can down the road. The reason why being a truthful person is a good thing is because of the fact that you tell the truth, right? There are true beliefs or true statements on the other side. The reason why I'm a, the virtue of reliability is that I come through. The reason why um, I, the virtue of hum, being humorous is a virtue is because of the fact that people get a laugh. That there are things outside and beyond the virtues that they're productive of that makes them good. Virtue can't be the only good because of the fact that virtues have got to be in that sort of, I'm in a causal relationship and a reliable causal relationship to something else that's good that I'm productive of and I'm playing a role in making happen. And that just seems like it's just a, like, that just looked like that is just an utter and devastating objection to stoic value. That just looks like it's totally. It is such to use some sort of um, a gamer vocabulary. That is such a headshot move on Stoic value theory. Like I just uh, like I I just find it a totally devastating objection. And so once you sort of see these two versions of the ruin problem uh, run hand in hand, which is being a practicing Stoic and being it being public, which is hey you're exercising the virtues, you're still kissing your wife, you're still doing all the nice things for her, you're still doing But now it's just, it's not about her being happy. It's not about you feeling the pleasure in it. It's not about deepening this relationship. It's about you doing your duty to this person and reminding yourself that this will be the end. And so despite the fact that your duties are comprised by your relations, doing your duties as a Stoic ruins the relations. Mm -hmm. The virtues, if they are not for the things that the virtues are productive of, Actually, seem to stand in the way of the product, the production of the things that the virtues are supposed to that make the virtues good. So that that just seems that just seems so bad for Stoicism, and it's one that it, it's again a kind of one of these problems that 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 again makes me makes me think that I'm not a Stoic. Makes me think I'm a bad like either either I'm a bad Stoic or not a Stoic at all. Yeah, not a Stoic at all.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> stoic at all. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I, I want to. So, I do want to say yeah. more about that, that first objection, because yeah. I, I think that's something Get we, haven't, after, man. we haven't touched on as much. Um, and then listeners, can go back to our previous conversation for the the value problem, because we, we we did dive into that, I, I thought, pretty clearly and in, uh, in depth. The, it's sort of interesting, because that reminds me a little bit about an objection to some theories of morality that Bernard Williams has. He has this one thought too many objection to say like things like uh, utilitarianism or strict forms of moral thought where, you know, say you're in a loving relationship with someone, um, but if you're a utilitarian, you have this ethical ideal to be maximizing the good, whatever that is. And you might com- come into positions where, I don't know, should I betray my romantic partner's trust? And then you might ask, well, is what produces the most happiness or something like that? And if you're just always asking that question for ordinary interactions. I think, well, the best person, they don't, in one of Epictetus's famous stories, he says, you know, this great person, they didn't even deliberate about the matter. They didn't even think about whether they entertained Nero. Likewise, in your loving relationships, you shouldn't even deliberate about betraying the other person's trust. Uh, And these sort of ethical theories give either yourself one thought too many, or in the case of the ruin objection for Stoicism, where they're thinking about, you know, are are they uh, less dependent on me or do they value even value me less because of their stoicism that uh is adding this one additional thought you're always thinking about loss or protecting yourself instead of the relationship that could could be potentially potentially corrosive so that's that's an i think an interesting interesting connection there
0: yeah and a a really boy a, a great observation that it's got a kind of a one thought too many um element to it um and it seems that the williams line is regularly that it's not just it's is that it's it feels like it's corrosive to the kind of character that you're trying to build Mm -hmm. and it's corrosive to the relationship like you wouldn't tell your you wouldn't tell your significant other that you did the calculation to right right? that's the so one part of the ruin problem is you might say the first personal version the other one is the second personal version of the ruin problem and i and in some ways I, i i don't think that so i think that the williams one thought too many days has got a first personal problem that I don't think that the stoic version of the, of the ruin problem has got. I don't think that preparing yourself for the loss of a loved one diminishes your capacity to be present for them in the Mm -hmm. moment, be able for those moments to still have um, significance and salience. So there's one little disanalogy, which is that I don't think that the first person, I don't think stoicism's got the first personal version that the Williams case does. So, um, But I think that in this regard there's a perfect analogy in the second person where they know that you're thinking about it, right? Um, and I think that it's there that you get the, the a version of the ruined problem. Now, here's a way that, like, again, this is more like a Band-Aid. I mean, I, like, this is me doing my best to be like, look, I, I'm rooting for stoicism. I've been thinking about this problem for a long time. And so I've only got Band-Aids. I've, I don't have a, a balm. I don't have a solution. I've only got sort of ways to kind of paper over some problems. One of them is that we might be underselling the reflective seriousness of the people with whom Stoics are in loving relationships with. So you might say, look, you know, if you have a romantic partner who says, am I just like a joke to you? Am I just a joke to you? Um, That could be a joke. But the thought is that if that thought ruins the relationship, um, that in some ways expecting that the people that we love to not be that reflective and to not be able to appreciate that thought, kind of sells them short. Now, again, though it's classically have pretty low opinions of, of, the, non-philo- of the non-philosophers, and so maybe, that, maybe that's sort of par for the course, But I don't think, but I think that if we think of the people with whom we share a lot of our lives as people, that if they found out about our Stoic, the Stoic attitudes that we have and the exercises that we go through, they might understand it. They might be able to see it and they might say like, well, you know, that's, I don't think that that's right, but I think that they may actually have a higher tolerance for that. The That looping version of the sort of the ruin Mm -hmm. problem is really based on really low expectations of non-Stoics.
1: Yeah, that seems right to me because you were thinking about what is the thought that the other person has in their mind? Is it that they wish the other person was, you know, the Stoic was more dependent on them? That doesn't seem, that, then it seems like they're making a a, a, mis- a kind of mistake. But is it more like the thought that maybe there's some amount of tragedy in the fact that this isn't the ideal uh, story where two people who are destined for each other, you know? meet one another and can't have a meaningful life without the fact that they met one another and, uh, you know, thank, thank fate or nature or whatever have you, that they did meet each other because otherwise, you know, everything would be terrible and you have sort of this, you know, so almost a, a cartoonish type version of romantic relationships, but also some of our deeper re- fr- friendships, I think, as well, have, can, can have this kind of character. Um, but I think there's a sense in which all of us are, are drawn towards those narratives where we think... Yeah if, if my wife had ever met me then probably she would have found someone else to you know fall in love with and start a family perhaps and there is this contingency and that's something one one is coming to terms with whether one's a, a stoic or not I, I i would hope
0: yeah yeah and i think that um given the fact that we all know that we we kind of don't we don't know how it's going to end right you know we don't know how our lives are going to end we don't know how our relationships are in and our relation all of our relationships will end because we end and so um living with living and loving and living and being in these relationships with our eyes open to that to that and wanting wanting those relationships to be whole and so that things are not unfinished is uh is in some ways a really mature way like that's kind of how grown ups really should be doing it not not like constantly Pushing off, the hey, I'm going to be totally present with you, as though maybe tomorrow, may, like we don't know what tomorrow is for us. So um, our lives need to be complete in every moment. Now, that's kind of a Marxist realist kind of thought, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, that's in some ways kind of what the what those what those exercises are supposed to do. So you know, there there is a kind of a strategy of seeing this, certainly from the first person, maybe from the second person, as deepening it. Um, the theoretical version is still one that, again, that if so far that so far this is just about like, okay, we've got we've got being a stoic practitioner has the possibility, not that now not the guarantee that it can sort of ruin the relationship or change the relationship in being in part of the relationship. The issue still is if the value of doing the duty for the ones. With whom you're sharing your life is just for the sake of doing your duty. Again, the virtue is just the virtue is just the, is the only good thing. That looks again like it's still not looking out beyond even the established and deepened relationship. Like we were just talking about, like yeah. okay, we do these things and we deepen the relationship, and then you say that's a that's still con- that, that's still a consequence, right? That's still looking beyond. Doing the virtuous thing, right, and it's there that again, I, I keep coming back and thinking, man, you know if all the ways that we were just trying to wrestle with the second person version of this still put it in terms of it establishing some other good beyond the action that we were doing. And maybe that's again a sort of, hey, you get more duties and right but uh, but that still looks like it kind of puts things out beyond your control. It requires that the other other people play along. It requires that fate kind of has to kind of play play so that uh, so that those overtures and those gestures and those those caretaking things that we do actually are successful. And you know anyone who has ever tried to have a date night knows the fate gets in the way all the time, and even when both people want it to happen. And so look, you know uh, the 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 reality is that. All the things that we did to justify that in the second person will look like they actually fail whenever we see it from the theoretical perspective. Um, I, like I kind of, I, again, I, I like it kind of anguishes me a little bit that, like, that that second part of the problem looks like it's really, really hard to solve. Got it. I think that the only way to kind of think of it is to instead of thinking it from the first person or the second person, but to kind of think of it from the third person, from the perspective of nature and saying like, okay, you're in some ways... What your job here is to be the kind of creature that you are doing the things that you do and that's your role and you're doing that, right? And so you play the role that you play and that's the good. Full stop, full stop. Now, again, that has to require that you kind of pull way, 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 way out and say like, okay, from the perspective of nature, you're playing the role that you need to be playing and that's the only good that you need to be doing. Um, that's the only good. You being, you doing the virtue. And so whether or not there are, there are successes or the deepenings that we were talking about from that, uh, from that, the, the ruined perspective from the interpersonal version. Um, and again, that looks like it's a pretty good way of kind of massaging it where you say, okay, look, you have to pull way, way out. See it, not from me, not from the perspective of me, not from the perspective of us, but from the perspective of uh, that third perspective. like. Sure. That human being is doing the thing that they need to be doing and trying to be the kind of creature that, that it is.
1: Yeah, it sounds, it's man that, initially you're knocking on the systemic approach, then all of a sudden it sounds like we need stoic physics. What is this? We need stoic <laughs> physics. We need, right, that's exactly it. You have to, like, I was,
0: I was kind of like, look, I'm kind of a minimalist and a lot of this was kind of working on this minimalist program, but now I said it was like, now from the perspective of nature now from the perspective of providence, now from the perspective of God's play that he's cast me in a role, uh, have to do a whole lot of other things that look like things get contextualized from outside the ethics. You Mm -hmm. are correct, sir.
1: Yeah, I I do think there is something to, maybe you don't need the Stoic, the traditional Stoic picture of providence, but it does seem like one needs some account of nature to ground uh, Stoic ethics. And... Yes, there are there are non-providential ways to do that, but I think it's something to to think through. Excellent. Well, this has been a blast. I, I feel like I've I have a better sense of of some of these objections. What you think? Uh, I hope I pushed back uh, in a useful way uh, and touched on some of our disagreements in, in a productive manner.
0: Uh, absolutely, Caleb. I really appreciate doing philosophy with you.
1: Thanks for listening to Stoa Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more Stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.